You are listening to the Horizon CIO podcast. We return with an episode featuring a keynote presentation by James Thomas, CTO of the Wellcome Trust. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Accomplish More and the next Speakeasy event on the 4th of November. The Accomplish More Speakeasy Night allows the membership to use the experience of the advisory board to test their ideas and discuss their challenges in a safe, neutral environment with fellow members. Find out more at accomplishmore.co.uk forward slash meet us forward slash speakeasy night. Right, do you want me to stand or can I sit? What do we think? Standing's probably better because it's uh, oh, okay. it's about the right. <laughs> <laughs> So, first off, uh, Welcome Trust is not Welcome Break. Um, for those who might not know the difference between, I have gone to a conference and been put into a hospitality-focused uh, line and business and stream assessment and then suddenly realised why. So, Welcome Trust, I don't know whether you know. Um, I'm going to go through some of the history just to give you some context of the organisation I work for and the impact that it has uh, around the world and the ability um, it can bring to bear. So we have a tagline, um, and our tagline is good health makes life better, okay? And actually that goes through everything we do. The reason we exist is because of um, Sir Henry Wilcom. And Sir Henry Wilcom was born in 1853 in America, and he came to the UK uh, in 1880. And he came to the UK in 1880 with his business partner, Silas Burroughs, and they set up uh, one of the first um, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, He had a fascination in pharmacy. The uh, Silas went back to the um, US and uh, Henry carried on and it became a hugely profitable uh, organisation. They created the tabloids uh, and patented that, so the method of delivery of the tablet for medicines. He was an avid traveller and uh, collector, so he went all around the world collecting any form of artefact he could to do with um, healthcare and health intervention and wellbeing. We have those available in our museum and collection. That's part of the reason we have that as well. And he started uh, philanthropic funding even back then. And back in the early days, some of his funding created some of the antitoxins for tetanus and diphtheria. He also uh, studied uh, or funded the study of um, histamine and created antihistamines and um, and I only learnt some of those doing a little bit more research recently as well. So it's quite amazing how he got involved. He had no family, had nobody to leave his legacy to, so as a result he created the trust. And so the Wellcome Trust inherited Wellcome Pharmaceutical and for the first 20 years it gave away about £1.1 million, which back in those days, you know, 1970s, etc., wasn't an unreasonable amount of money. But as you roll forward, so disbursements grew. So £20 million we gave away in 1985, £100 million in 1992, £260 million in 1994. And if we look at the financial year 2015-2016, uh, we gave away £1.1 billion. Pounds. So that's the scale of impact we have available to us. We can only do that because Welcome Pharmaceuticals was floated on the stock market, shares were then sold, the shares were held within um, Welcome Trust, and then there was a final decision to actually segregate from the pharmaceutical company and the trust, and so it was sold on to, I think, SmithKline at the time, and uh, Glaxo Welcome um, was formed as well. And that left us with our endowment. So our endowment, which is what we manage and what creates our ability, currently sits today in the region, and obviously it values, uh, revalued every day, 24 billion pounds. 
So that's our punch around the world. We're the second largest philanthropic funder to the Gates Foundation. That's great, gives us loads of opportunity. Obviously sets a really high bar to make sure that actually you make really good use of that. So I sit as, sorry, I didn't introduce myself in my role. My role's CTO at Wellcome Trust. I'm on the executive board at the Wellcome Trust. Um, I'm a CTO, not a CIO, because we have a CIO and our CIO is our chief investment officer. That's the problem of working with an organization that has an investment bank. So we have a framework about how we go about uh, spending this uh, money across the organization. And uh, that comes in three forms, really. Advancing ideas, seizing opportunities, and driving reform. And we tend to tag all the different types of activity that we're doing um, around that. An example of seizing an opportunity, I would say, and this is now actually becoming recurrent, so you'll all have heard of Ebola. Okay, Ebola is a particularly aggressive and particularly nasty virus that's predominantly seen in um, East Africa. What Wellcome managed to do with its funds and its intervention, vaccine development requires you to go through trials in people, et cetera, and everything else before you pass any gates, before any pharmaceutical company will go into significant manufacturing. As a result of that, you get a multi-year lead into all of this. With the original Ebola outbreaks, we were aware that there was a vaccine in development, actually, and it was close to entering into trials. So what Wellcome did was actually, I think it was 250 million, we spent funding the pharmaceutical industry to mass produce the vaccine prior to any approvals, prior to any gateway trials passing, et cetera. And so as a result of that, as soon, literally the day after the trials gave it enough credence to be used in emergency ways, we were as well actually deploy that. And that actually curtailed the original outbreaks of Ebola. And the success of that vaccine is such that every medical intervention, every scientific researcher has, who uh, have been vaccine going out and the success rate is in the high 99% for all those and their interventions. Obviously they have other methods to try and distance themselves from getting infected, so, um, which is fantastic. And it's deployed en masse now across Dominican Republic and places like that. And actually you wouldn't be reading about Brexit at the moment, you'd be reading about the global Ebola outbreak because there are massive Ebola outbreaks even today, but they're not hitting the headlines because they are being, I won't say contained, but you know, combated by that particular vaccine. So that's an emergency intervention that we did. The only other bit about welcome I'll do before I get on to the day job is, so the 1.1 billion is going out to, we will fund uh, scientists at all stages of their career, uh, PhDs, and then it, right the way in through to being lead researchers running their own research institutions. We fund institutions, so these are academic institutions around the world where we give them infrastructure funding, etc. Uh, we will fund specific projects as well. So whether that's genetically modifying mosquitoes. So one of the things around uh, dengue, which is a really bad disease, was to actually genetically modify mosquito. We funded the science behind it, which genetically modified mosquitoes. You introduce them into a flock of mosquitoes. They breed with the local mosquitoes and then the next generation of mosquitoes are unable to breed. So you're not killing the mosquito population. You're only targeting the infected mosquito population. What we didn't anticipate was the Zika outbreak in uh, South America, where actually that same genetic modification approach to mosquitoes has now been applied to the introduction of flocks in Zika-affected areas, where they're now seeing actually a turnaround in the infected mosquito populations as well. So 
That's the type of things from people to institutions to specific projects. We have a few really long-term engagements, 25-year engagements in Vietnam and India and Africa where we've actually uh, tried to actually build a sustainable research culture. So there they've got scientific institutions which have been funded from the scratch. They've built up their expertise to the degree that we are now getting applications from scientists who have gone all the way through those education environments and their world credentials are sufficient for them to be competing for grants from us for their research and what they want to lead now as well. So, so that's welcome. So um, my, my ramble that I'm going to go on now. So I've been at Welcome for three years, okay? And I came in, I will say maybe I was missold what I came into. Uh, I knew Welcome was an amazing organization that I wanted to get involved with. <laughs> Precisely. Due diligence. Yeah. Why don't we do it so well, so well? Anyway, when I arrived at Wellcome, we could say how much money we gave away and who we gave it to. We could not say what we got for that money and whether or not we were achieving the impact and the outcomes that we wanted around the world. Data was absolutely not on anybody's radar. Uh, we had a conversation earlier on about data uh, uh, over there. You know, it will be the future, not digital. Technology will still be required. So my journey was to inherit what was already in place um, and create something that actually was able to help steer welcome. My appointment was the first on an executive level for anybody around technology or data or digital uh, uh, at all. Welcome is a culture of cultures. Okay, so um, you've got, and when I say that, so I have an investment bank and uh, uh, my characteristics had to be correct here in how I describe them. So I've written down investment bank, very performance driven with a closed culture. And they're closed because they won't do anything unless it actually drives forward the value of the endowment. And actually you've got to sit back and go, that's probably in our interests. <clears throat> so they're in a building. We have to serve those. We have the Welcome Collection. If any of you have been to it on Euston Road, it is an amazing facility. It holds the largest medical library in the world, which is online. We've got a, a medical image library as well, which is accessible. We have resident exhibitions and we have um, uh, touring exhibitions that we fund as well to stimulate and provoke public engagement in the whole agenda of science and health. So that's run by our culture and society. So they have a huge cultural focus. They are driven by public engagement. They're incredibly open and incredibly inclusive. Uh, and then we have a big science division and the science division is incredibly reflective. They're hugely evidence-based and they're outcome focused, not pace. And what I mean by that is I've never encountered a time clock which is driven by, I still don't think that's got a good enough outcome, I still don't think that's got a good enough outcome, and time is irrelevant because the money's not gonna go away, we're not gonna go bankrupt, the science will not go away, but it needs to be perfect. And, and that's a really, really interesting culture to work with. So we've got, I've basically got all of those cultures uh, across Welcome. So as we brought together, we brought together uh, an old IT team, which was literally an old IT team. I knew more about what Welcome did than they did when I joined, because they were that siloed amongst themselves and that insular. We had a web development world. I had no information governance, no security people at all when I walked in. And I had no data or innovation people badged in any of that world at all either. So I had to go about trying to merge this whole world together in a way to enable Welcome. And, um, and we, in 2017, created something called Digital and Technology at the time. 
I've got some vocabulary down here that I was trying to bring together. So these sort of just symptomatic to give you some examples. So on one side, I had user experience research, and on the other side, I had business analysts. I had user experience design, and I had process mapping. I had agile development, and I had procurement of COTS products um, and configuration management. I had sprints, retrospectives, and I had project plans. I had scrum masters, and I had risks and issues logs. I had evergreen infrastructure, and I had resident in-house data centers, which I couldn't believe. I've got three, I inherited three of those, um, and resilient networks. BOYD Max splattered in any logos and stickers you can imagine, and a whole infrastructure team and a desktop team to support um, devices. So, so this was the challenge of bringing those vocabularies and those activities together uh, and then trying to focus them to support welcome. Okay, so as a result of that, we took an approach to try and launch a new target operating model and a new approach of how we were going to run digital and technology. And um, we wanted to get away from some of the symptoms of the old way of working. So if you looked at the old technology worlds, we would have a projects world and an operations world. The projects world would be focused on delivering their project based on their timetable of what they felt and when they were ready to go live, they would go live regardless of the operational world. But an operational world who was firefighting and dealing with issues who might need an outcome of a project, but they couldn't have it because it wasn't in their time control or their domain, etc. But what they did have to do was deal with the project which was going live, which the projects had decided was the most relevant. Neither of these worlds had any relevance to what Welcome was doing at any particular time. We, we absolutely have tried to get away from that. So we have, this is my micro, we have created micro teams where we brought together the projects world and the operational world and we've made them a contiguous team to own their own destiny and their own agendas. The really successful one we've done around is our infrastructure and our move to cloud for infra, uh, from infrastructure side. So they have an envelope of outcomes they need to achieve. They are absolutely working in an agile approach but they are self-prioritizing themselves based on the business need and the business issues we see surfacing within the 18-month window of the things that they need to do. We're trying to do the same thing with our line of business systems, so the systems to support libraries and, and investments, et cetera, and those sorts of things. And we have done it with the enterprise, so we're, we are now a big Microsoft um, 365 world as well. You have product management versus system management and applications management as well, and, and how those two fit around. One of the things we did there was the introduction and creation of what we call platform boards. So platform boards, so one of our big things we do is give money away, grants to scientists, etc. When it got there, if you looked at it, a scientist who wanted to get a grant, they had to go and look at a website to get some idea of getting telephone numbers and what the grant might be that they would do and then phone somebody. They were then sent some forms that they had to fill in and send back to some email addresses. If they were slightly more successful, they'd then get invited to attend panels and interviews, et cetera, and things like that. If they were really successful, they were then given a login to a portal to a system, which was for us to track what the content of the grants were. And then as a result of that, we would then send them a link to a finance system and where we were with finance to actually give them some money and get invoices and track back. For us, this was completely focused around the silos of the different business processes that we needed to surface inside Welcome, sorry, to support inside Welcome. And so I introduced the concept of actually end-to-end -end customer journey. And this platform board is not a digital and technology platform board. It's actually chaired and run by the director of grants and science sit in it and everybody else. And now they're responsible for making that encounter more and more seamless. We're using user experience 
surveys and experience design to actually give them evidence about how they can improve it. They are prioritising all of the activities across any of those systems or services which touch that journey. So now it's completely business-driven as to what are we going to do, how is it prioritised, and the business is taking the responsibility to take some of the complexity around our business process interfaces to make it better for the outcome that Welcome needs. Because Welcome needs the best scientists in the world to be willing to apply to us to get funding. Um, we've done the same thing internally, so we've created what we call a people platform, which is the end-to-end -end staff employee experience, and actually taking all the silos that we have, again, around recruitment or facilities or any of the experiential bits, and actually bringing that together to focus that against around, again, around that staff experience to make that um, more valuable. Uh, Vocabulary-wise, um, digital has APIs, you mentioned, and open standards, and the technology world talked about architecture. Culturally, the behavioural side, the vocabulary, the next piece, which was a real encounter, was search navigation versus navigation of folders and URLs. And we have a really challenging story here. So we've gone down the whole road of Microsoft. I inherited Microsoft 365 failed implementations. We are now nearly there. So SharePoint Online is our repository. Um, we have huge amounts of data for an organization because we have arch archivists and all sorts, they really care about it. So we've gone through migrating all of this data off network file shares, et cetera, cleansing data, deleting it where we can because GDPR is hideous and you don't want to keep anything you don't want. They've been tagging that data and indexing it, so there's some subsites and search and all sorts, which is great. Our investments division work based on structured folders. That's how they work. It's their work practice, and they will not use search, and they will not use indexing. So regardless, we're now in a world where we're moving to new technologies, et cetera, but we are completely etched back in having to still support search, tag, navigation, and structured folders, index, and I will navigate through, et cetera, because the behavioral change will not happen. And it's the golden chest of investments where they say that's the most productive way for them to work, and therefore nobody is able to trump that within Welcome. So that cultural piece yeah, about having multiple cultures. Um, how fast, how slow comes out of this? So operations board I was at only three weeks ago, Two projects came to our operations board. One is around the uh, replacement of our travel services providers. So at any one time, I've probably got about 200 different individuals around the world visiting either specialist centers or scientists or um, institutions that we either invest in or are engaging with us in a partnering activity. So our travel services have a lot of activity into a lot of dangerous bits of the world. They're very important to us. But the new travel service provider systems require browser levels below what we now currently have based on all of the security work we've done. If we can't get that system to access from our premises, this is really bizarre, we will not get access to the charitable air rates because that's the way that that industry works. So that's, we're too far advanced. The other side to that, our dearly beloved investment colleagues who want to be able to navigate by files, folders, etc. They want file online within SharePoint. That requires a newer version of Windows 10 than we are currently on and a newer version of the browser. So in one meeting, you've got the we're moving too fast and we're moving too slow, dependent on different bits of welcome. You are listening to the Horizon CIO podcast. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Accomplish More and the next Speakeasy event on the 4th of November. 
Governance and security, I would observe that governance and security did not exist in the web digital world when I arrived. Um, it's taken a couple of years to introduce a form of governance to them. We are there now. Security uh, uh, is a better story. The, the technology world did security but didn't understand why they did it. And the web digital world, we now do security by design, which is really great, and they all get why that's important. Um, we have 26 billion reasons, 24 billion today reasons, why security is really important to us. Uh, and we had a really testing year last year. Um, and part of that is because Jeremy Ferrara, our director, has made a fantastic job over the last five years about going global on how we need to impact the world. And so our impact is global now, but that raises the bar. We launched a vision and strategy um, to set out our goals. And those goals were around trying to get the right device for staff, getting excellent digital products to engage, uh, developing data and intelligence. So part of our journey is we've now formed a data labs within uh, Welcome as well and started that process and actually reduced the complexity. They had the money to go and buy what they wanted. And so an organization that has about 850 people, I inherited probably 400 applications because everybody could go and buy what they pleased because there was the funding available to do it. We stopped that, um, the funding available bit. Um, we still have far too many. So that was our cultural journey. Um, hopefully that was interesting. Um, some additional observations about trying to go through that journey. Audit. I am sure everybody, so we have internal audit and external audit. I'm sure you all have some form of external audit, financial controls, year-end, accounts, publishing, etc. and everything else. You pretty much don't have any influence over it. They're going to do it the way they do it. Granted. Our internal audit uh, was set upon the task of auditing the digital and technology transformation journey because it was seen as a high-risk thing and it could put welcome at, at risk of functionality, et cetera, and ability to operate. So that's a good thing. I don't have any problem with that. that that's the way we should do. But a, a, an, a, an example for you. So I talked about one of our micro teams, which is really successful in infrastructure, where they're doing that journey to cloud and they're being quite radical about it and they're you know, iterating and reprioritizing, et cetera, and everything else. And in that journey to cloud is also setting up our DR. So rather than us having three data centers, two in London, one in Cambridge, a load of that can be done in a virtual way. So they're making good progress on that. The auditors go in and start auditing this, okay? And the auditor's initial report back to me is red, inadequate, out of control, okay? And you delve into it, and they're asking for project plans, they're asking for levels of documentation about every step, why have you got the order you've got, Don't you, how, you know, why did you change the order you had, etc. We audited you two months ago and come back and you've not done what you said you were gonna do there, and all these sorts of things. So we ended up actually having what I called, and what was my polite term for it? Uh, an honesty meeting. We had an honesty meeting with the internal auditors. Now that meeting was very frank because it was basically to say, I disagree with your findings, okay, and we have two avenues here. We can either pursue the route you want to go from an audit perspective, in which case we will have to fail back on our cultural change and fail back on our speed and agility that we're trying to do the transformational journey we're doing, or we can take a completely different approach from an audit perspective. And I left that meeting with our head of internal audit, who actually was very engaged in the conversation and very 
engaged in how much we'd already made an impact to welcome to try and change the speed of uh, uh, supporting welcome. And what has resulted in that, so our internal audit do use one of the big external partners to help do it. We've changed the lead partner in that external organization to help assist with our internal audit. And they've come in and the first audit that they're going to do for us as a result of this is actually they're going to audit the different forms of Agile that we're using across D&T. Because we know we've got a whole scattergun at the moment. That's the inheritance of where we are. To actually try and help us get some really great learning so we can actually move them all up to a better level. It's been a really difficult journey, but it's one that I'm probably most proud of at the moment um, as a result of that. OKRs? We all know what OKRs are? No. No, right, OK. So we've introduced... <laughs> Okay, uh, so we've introduced OKRs, which is um, uh, objectives and key results. So it's quite a, a, a dynamic way of trying to um, assess development, iteration, etc. And so that's sort of in a framework that we have. So our framework, so goal for us, which we set in our vision uh, and strategy. So who will do what differently as a result of what we do? So this is looking out, okay. And what changes as a result of what we do? So goals can be long-term, span multiple quarters, multiple years, if, if you like, okay? So we have goals. Objectives. So then objectives, the things we want to achieve in pursuit of our goal in a quarter or a year, okay? So these are the what. Key results, the things we believe we need to do to achieve an objective, and key results are measurable, they are the how, Indicators, so indicators, what we need to know to inform that the change has occurred, they are how we measure delivery against the key results and as an extension of that, the objectives and the goals. And then evidence, the data we collect throughout the quarter, the year, etc., to report on the indicators. Okay, so this family now works in combination. And what does that mean? So our digital and technology vision and strategy, we set out for 30 months. It, it got passed by the executive board, I think, either December last year or January this year. I can't remember which board meeting we passed it at. So that sets out our goal. We have annual delivery plans, and those annual delivery plans include the objectives. And those objectives are reviewed every six months. So our operational board, we go through every delivery plan across Welcome. Then we have our OKRs, which is part of the development cycles for the digital bits. Those are done quarterly. So those are the key results, and we review those ongoing within the delivery teams. And we have then a monthly metrics meeting. So our metrics meeting, I pull all of the management of digital and technology into it, and every area of digital and technology reports on metrics for their bit, so that we are cross-breeding the understanding of the different challenges between doing stuff for a library or an external web digital product for primary care to an investment bank system, etc. Because I never want to get back to that silo, if you remember when I walked in, where they didn't know what happened across Welcome. Two more things. So 10% uh, time. So when I got there, there was this thing floating around called 10% time. So 10% time was only available to web development team. And 10% time, I think it came from Google originally. The idea is it's to give headspace without any direction or mandate, etc. So, um, so we now we now do sprints and fire break. So we sprint, then we have a fire break. The fire break gives the ability to do the 10% time. So our digital product teams, so that's the ones that do all our digital um, external facing, internal facing products. They do a quarter of sprints and then they have one week as a fire break, which is 10% time. Our data science team, which sits in our data labs, 
They do a quarter of sprints, but they then have two weeks of fire break, which is basically a week of 10% time and then a week of R&D. So it's a little bit more structured and targeted as opposed to the free time. Our delivery teams, and there's a sophistication to this, so these are the ones from the technology world, not the digital world, but are work, trying to work in sprints and agile ways. So they basically do three two-week sprints and then one two-week fire break, okay? And that's how they get their 10% time focus for that. We have some people who can't work in agile and sprints, so we run service desks and things like that, actually. And, well, I currently haven't worked out how you do that in a sprint base, but I'm sure somebody will try. But those teams, so basically those, we give them 10% time or the right for it, and we try and work it into work patterns. Just to be really, really clear, you know, we are not fully there. I would not guarantee every member of DNT gets 10% time all the time. What I do know is every member of DNT knows they have the right to it, and somewhere in the relationship, we've got to work it through such that they actually get to a point where they can actually start using that. Two more bits. Liquid Planner, we put in Liquid Planner. I had never heard of Liquid Planner, but some bright, wonderful individual said Liquid Planner is what we need. And I try very hard not to get involved in challenging decisions because it's great when they come to you and say, this is what we're going to do. And you sit back nervously and think, oh my God. Um, it's actually worked out okay. Uh, it gives us all the intel and intelligence over what's going on. It helps with sprint planning as well. And actually, it's the thing that really told me how many people didn't get 10% time. So the byproduct of putting it in has been fantastic. Data and innovation. So data and innovation, as I said at the start, when I arrived, there was no focus on data at all, okay? The first thing I did was put a very small team together and we put in Tableau visualization, actually start surfacing some of the data that's floating around. You then immediately start surfacing all the data quality issues, which is the data which is there. And we've gone through a whole data quality cleansing and improvement program. We've now built on that. So we now have what we call data labs. So we have senior data engineer, we have data scientists and social scientists working together. Um, and this is because, uh, you know, in, in the world of science, data science absolutely has to be relevant to everybody. It's either relevant today or it will be relevant to you. And we need to get ahead of that. An example of how we've used that. So in our world, policy is really important to us. It could stop us doing vital research. So if you think about gene editing or stem cell editing, or actually science around the fetus and doing science on, a, on fetus and understanding that, legislation could ban all of that overnight if it's ill-informed. So one of our really, really important things is to make sure we build the evidence base and it gets to be read and seen by all the right people so that we have balanced policy and legislation put in place. But again, we had no idea how successful or not we were with this, okay? And th this was really interesting with your ethics of AI meal that we had. So a little journey for you. So this is our, poli our machine learning policy tool. So we compile a list of keywords which could act as synonyms to research being funded by Wellcome. We scrape the WHO and the NICE guideline repositories, which are out there, which is about a quarter of a million different documents, okay? Looking for where keywords are mentioned or referenced Okay, we did tell them we were doing this, by the way. I would warn you to do that. It's really good practice. If you are gonna go and scrape publicly and made available information, you should tell them before you go and do it. So we've, we did that. Uh, we matched titles and references in those documents to titles and publications known to have had acknowledgement and funding or involvement from Wellcome Trust. 
We map how our research can lead to the policy impact and look at the documents with the keywords or WT funding, etc., to see what type of policy change actually occurred and how influential we were in that. And there are three product, uh, three outcomes of this. One will be you find that there are policies that we thought we'd influenced and we can see exactly how we did influence it. And that's great. And it's like, well, we've put all that effort in and we've just confirmed what we knew. The next uh, outcome of that though is there are policies where we're adamant we have influenced that policy quite significantly because it's really important to us and we got the outcome we wanted. And when you trace this all back, you realize actually almost bugger all of Wellcome's funded policy research, et cetera, made any influence at all into that policy. So it's actually luck almost you might say that that policy had the outcome that we needed to continue doing the research we did. And then the third one is the one where actually you start looking at policies which actually have been really beneficial to us, but we know we didn't have any input into them and actually reverse engineer and start tracing that back to go and find out which other institutions around the globe are funding the similar things we are and having impactful outcomes. So we can then go and actually have conversations about better refining how we do this research to help refine influence over policy. So that's all current. Our tool has now been run on UK research and innovation data. It's been commissioned to be run on Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation data that they're funding as well. So you know the success of this, and we're not charging, we're, we'll go out and we'll collaborate and let them use it absolutely no problem. Um, my last bit is a little bit of a niggle about something I haven't solved. So um, I didn't want you to think it's all really, really easy and really, really good. Um, and I'm gonna say funding cycles. Funding cycles and budgeting, okay? And what I mean by that, so this is really like the audit. This is about where you really try and change the way you do business and then you come up against an institu institutional thing that has always been done the way it is and there's too many influential people who say it has to be done the way it is. And what I mean by this, so our financial year end is uh, September, October. We are just starting now our business budget planning to build our budget for 2019-20, okay? and they want us to build up the detail of all of the technology projects and initiatives. And they want us to go out and disturb the business and ask them for their wish lists and everything else. Today, for projects that might not even get implemented until August or September 2020, which in my world is about the most balmy, stupid thing you do, you know, we can create, we can do budget planning and we can make an assumption about how much we want to invest in change and initiatives and everything else. No problem with that, that's really healthy. But don't nail it against some stupid things today that may be completely irrelevant then. I am currently losing this battle. I'm making progress, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, losing my battle on this particular one. So if anyone's got an answer to that one and they've got FDs, they've got it cracked and, and are really receptive, that'd be really good. So, I'm not low, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Horizon CIO Network is the largest community of CIOs and CTOs in the UK. Our live events and WhatsApp group offer CIOs the opportunity to network with peers and discuss key issues in a moderated debate with journalist Mark Chillingworth. If you're not already a member, contact Mark on Twitter or via LinkedIn. This podcast is currently seeking vendor partners. If you're an innovation provider with a story to tell, please contact producer Matt via our website, www.horizoncio.network, to find out more. 